Greetings to anyone who's just joined us or just joined us online. I'm Joel, and welcome to Advent in Isaiah. Today, we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40 is a message given to God's people in a day when all news was bad news. God's people in Isaiah 40 are in exile in Babylon. And you know what their song is? Nobody's fault but mine. We don't know what it's like to lose our nation, to lose our land, to be in bondage to foreign enemies. So we really need to use our imaginations if we can turn those on for a moment so we can actually lean into this text. Let me help us. There's a recent documentary called The Defenders. No children, they're not superheroes. They're actually guys like Dave and Christine. They're computer specialists, the defenders, and their job is to protect us from cyber attacks. And this is very important. It is actually quite likely that the next major foreign attack that we will face in our nation will be initiated without bullets. Few countries actually pose a real threat to us militarily. So it's much more economical to find other ways. Our infrastructure. Anything that we build can be hacked. So there are mounting threats. The defenders actually warn of a cyber 9-11. And they're working hard all the time to prevent this. Where basically bad actors will hack into our system, shut us down, and leave us entirely helpless. The greatest concern comes from chief information security officers who are targeted hundreds of times each and every week. Evil organizations will offer them large bribes or they'll try and sneak into their lives unsuspectingly. So let's imagine that's you. You are a chief security officer. That's your job. And you're approached one day by a neighbor who comes over. They seem so kind. They brought you a Christmas gift. And you're so charmed. You invite them in. You're having a great time, having eggnog. And they're really impressed by your position. They're so affirming of your job. Oh, and they brought you a gift, and you know you shouldn't, but you're like, I'll give you a peek what I have access to. Imagine waking up the next morning, and suddenly the entire American power grid goes down. Oh, and it turns out your banking buddy also let someone sneak at what he had access to. And suddenly the power grid shut down. The banking systems are shut down. Oh. And the military as well. Imagine a week later, everything is absolute chaos in our nation. Oh, and then the foreign invaders arrive, invade, take over our nation. And you and me and all of our neighbors were put on ships and were taken off to foreign countries, deported, forced to live in places where we can't worship God, can't gather like we're doing now, where we have no protections, where our children have no future. What might go through your mind as you woke up the next morning in a foreign land and you look around and all you see everywhere around you is bad news? Oh, and then you look within at yourself and all you see is bad news. Because the one you look at in the mirror played a part in this tragedy. Let me ask you, if you were in that horrific situation looking at yourself in the mirror, what would good news sound like? 
It would sound like Isaiah chapter 40. Let's take it in. Isaiah chapter 40. Now hear the word of our God. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare or hardship is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. The grass withers, the flower fades but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, make your presence felt. We ask and pray that you will rend the heavens and come down and leave no heart here unchanged. Our time is short. Our need is great. Have mercy on us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I didn't read chapter 39 of Isaiah, but what's interesting is if you, when you turn the page from chapter 39 to chapter 40 in Isaiah, you're actually making a 150-year jump into the future. In the chapters prior to this, God's people were under the rule of a guy named King Hezekiah. And the world bully in this day was the empire of Assyria. Assyria had a massive war machine that they used to just gobble up all the smaller nations. In chapter 37 of Isaiah... Assyria attacks, but King Hezekiah prays, he puts his faith in God, and Jerusalem is saved. Chapter 38, King Hezekiah, he gets sick to the point of death, so he prays. He puts his faith in God, and God raises him up and promises him another 15 years. And then you come to chapter 39, and somebody shows up on Hezekiah's doorstep with a, so glad you're better present. A king from Babylon sends his guys to say, hey, we were rooting for you. We heard you were sick, and we're so happy you're better. And King Hezekiah makes a horrible mistake. He warmly welcomes them in, and then he gives them access to see all his wealth, all his storehouses, even his armory. Why did Hezekiah show off all this stuff to these guys? You know what he's saying? He's saying to Babylon, hey, you and us, uh, we can watch out for one another against Assyria. We got each other's backs, right? 
He turned from God, his faith in God, looking to God alone, to now Babylon to protect his interests. And this was a tragic misstep. Actually, Isaiah shows up right after that and says, hey, who did you just let in and what did you show them? And Hezekiah says, hey, no worries. Just some fellows from a faraway place named Babylon. They were so nice. They acted really interested and I showed them everything. This is how chapter 39 ends with Isaiah saying to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom your will father, shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, listen to this, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, there will be peace and security in my day. What do you think of Hezekiah? Hezekiah failed to trust God by inviting bad company into Jerusalem. And as a result, his children and his great-grandchildren, their nation's going to be ruined. Nothing's going to be left of their homeland. Many are going to be taken off in chains. And he shrugs, at least I'll be okay. I won't be impacted. And he wasn't. But those who lived 150 years later where Isaiah 40 is, they sure were. Because Babylon had destroyed Jerusalem and exiled the people. Let me ask you, how many of you feel like survivors? You came in here this morning, and if you think about it, you just feel like you're a survivor living in this nation? How many of you remember, for as long as you can remember, you're just in survival mode? How many of us suffer because of the sinful and selfish actions of those who came before us? We all do. Our forefathers permitted slavery. They destroyed the Native Americans. They polluted our land. They've caused many evils. And everyone in our nation suffers today from these things that took place hundreds of years ago, right? Oh, in America's best moments, uh, they didn't really change anything. I heard a pastor talk about V-Day, the day triumph, the triumph of democracy at the end of World War II. His grandparents were in D.C., the nation's capital, and they went downtown to celebrate. I mean, who could sleep after the triumph of good over evil? The Nazis got taken down. When they got home, they just wanted to take a bath. After finding themselves in the midst of so many vulgar displays, evil destroyed, no, a new perversion was invited into our very capital. And such perversions have continued to sweep through our land for the last 75 years, ruining and even now redefining marriage, wrecking our families, and each and every generation of children has suffered. Anybody here ever just get disappointed by life, their life experience in the 21st century? Maybe you've been born into poverty. Maybe you were born parentless. Maybe you were abused mentally, physically, spiritually, verbally. Maybe you were manipulated for much of your life. Maybe your childhood was wrecked. Maybe it was stolen from you. It haunts you today. Or 
maybe you had a good life, but you find you're still discontent, that there's nothing in this world that can truly bring you happiness and joy. You ever get disappointed by what life on earth has amounted to? Ever get discouraged over romance? Disillusioned in your career? Distressed over the folks you've lost? Now let's look within. How many of us are purely innocent victims? You were a perfect child. You never took toys from anyone. You never hurt your brothers or sister or anybody. How many of you are perfect? How many of you could say, I never ran after the sinful delights of this age? Anyone? Anyone find themselves disappointed after you look at your own life and what you've done? I am so glad to hear that. Not that I delight in your sorrow. But it's only when you come to see there's nothing but bad news here that you can finally ready to hear and take hold of something that is good news. What is good news for you? Comfort, comfort. My people says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The good news and our first word today is total restoration and release of all that. Comfort, comfort, says your God. Did anybody expect God to say that to you while you're just in all your mess? Maybe you feel he's abandoned you and all that he's allowed to happen in your life. That's actually what the people in Babylon were saying while they're in bondage. In verse 27, if you'd read on later in this chapter, God's people were saying, God doesn't care about us. He's abandoned us. But what is God saying? He is saying, comfort, comfort my people. God is saying, you're still mine. He calls them Jerusalem. They're not in Jerusalem. They're in Babylon. Why does he call them Jerusalem? Because he says, you still remain my people wherever you are. Do you realize that when you feel God is far from you, it is because you first decided to play hide and seek. You know the game kids play? That's what we do. If you feel like you're far from God this morning, that's on you. It's because you ran away first and hid. Remember Genesis 3? Adam and Eve committed the first sin against God. And what did they do? They ran and hid and covered themselves up with leaves when God showed up. Which is pretty ridiculous. Think about it. How do you hide from God? Anybody think they can hide from God? I think it actually reveals God's kind heart, that he would actually play the game with these rebels. God's first words to the first rebels on earth were, where are you? Where are you? Like you couldn't see him. God wants us to come out of hiding so that he can heal us, so that he can comfort us. Isaiah 40 is assurance that God still loves rebel sinners. He speaks tenderly to the shattered heart. Some of you children may get this tenderness better than us as adults. We get big. But you know, you've disobeyed, right? You get in a fight with your brother or your sister. What happens? You get exiled up to your room. And there you are, 
and you feel bad, you're all alone, and suddenly the door opens, and your mom or dad comes in. They put their arm around you, and they speak tenderly, and they say, guess what? The war is over. Your hardship is ended. You can come out of your room right now. You're pardoned. You are restored. You know you're wrong, but your parents still loves you. But sometimes you have to go into exile before you realize the significance of your sin. Friends, this is the comfort God is giving Israel in their sin. And he says, I'm going to make everything all better. Because God is promising to receive double for their sins. What in the world does that mean? This is actually challenging, but I believe this has to do with Exodus 22 and how a thief was restored. And think about it, they really just stole God's land and vandalized it. In Exodus 22, you learn how a thief was restored. So imagine I stole Cindy's cow, all right, back in the Old Testament days. And so now I have to give you your cow back, okay? But that doesn't fully fix the situation, right? You'd still be upset. I caused you grief, right? So in the Old Testament, not only would I have to give Cindy's cow, her cow back, but then I would have to give her another cow so that I would experience the same grief of having lost a cow that she experienced. Friend, every sin that you commit, I want you to hear this, does far more damage than you even realize and recognize. That's kind of scary, isn't it? To think that every sin is actually far worse than you even realize. But that's comfort right here because God not only promises to deal with the sin, he's paying it double, total release. Isaiah's point here is that God is so going to deal and take care of your sin, it's gone forever. Isaiah's point is there is an end to the discipline that you're facing in this life, the end of the suffering. Total relief from all those things that weigh you down, that you regret, all your failures. Ray Ortland writes, God does not forsake people who forsake him. His promise, his initiative, his imagination, his grace and glory are our comfort in our failure. You can trust this God even more than you trust yourself. You can trust this God absolutely. Friends, Isaiah 40 gives you permission to be comforted in a messed up world. It's permission. You are released from all your sin and guilt, and you're one day closer to total restoration, which is to come. Every day you're one day closer. That was our first word. Our second word is repentance before revival. Verse 3, a voice cries. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Isaiah hears a voice call out that the Lord is coming and he sees the picture of a landscape, a wilderness. Now in those days, if a king was coming to visit a town, you know what the townspeople would do? The king's coming? Oh, they would go out and fix all the roads leading into the town. They'd fill the potholes, make the path straight. They'd roll out the red carpet. 
But friends, here Isaiah is referring to the landscape of our lives. Do you know why we have a confession of sin each and every Sunday? Yes, we suffer because of what others have done to us, the situation they put us in. We're surrounded by sinners, but we cannot just blame all our problems on those outside us. We're participants. You ever given access to bad company in your life? Have you done things that have hurt others? That makes you bad company too. And if the rock band won't deny that they're rebel souls and deserters, are you going to? So what are the crooked things in your life that you need to make straight, that you need to level? What sort of clutter do you have lying around in your closet? What are you covering with leaves thinking that no one can see? What are the cruel words you spoke to someone last week or, or maybe this morning? Did you stare at screens more than you stared at and talked to the people you love or you're supposed to love? What did you watch last week that was foul and nasty? Who have you hurt that you need to ask for forgiveness from? What's stopping you? Pride? Fear? Cowardice? You realize cowards are first in line for the lake of fire in Revelation? <laughs> Maybe you're wishing right now, Pastor Joel, why didn't you linger longer on the comfort, comfort? But Isaiah is showing us that the task of the preacher, it's a double task. I stand here to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. That's my dual job. Becoming born again is not only an experience of comfort and joy, which I fear is being preached from far too many pulpits. If you've never felt guilt, sorrow over your shame and sin, from the fact that you've run from God, which we've all done, if you've never felt that, friend, I'm going to say you're not born again. And you need to come out and come clean, repenting and keeping at it your whole life. Feeling that sorrow for your sin. Yesterday I was out shopping with my wife and I saw a, a whack-a-mole game. <laughs> Ever get discouraged by this, the non-stop repenting of your sins? <laughs> sin for me is like that. You know, it's a whack-a-mole game. Whack. You ever played it? I mean, it's annoying. You knock one down and comes another sin. Whack. Knock it down, it comes up and again. You know, and it's just a constant rough ground that you're trying to make flat. Whack. Another one. Friends, I love what Tim Keller says here. The real sin is to be discouraged by your sins. The real sin is to be discouraged by your sins. This passage actually gives us permission as well to experience joy every time you knock one down. Praise God, I knocked another one down. That wool is not up anymore. Why did you get joy out of that? And here's the thing. Do you know that the Christian is the only person who can live without regrets on this world. Look up 2 Corinthians 7.10. The Christian is the only one who can walk through their whole lives with all their mistakes and live with no regrets. Anybody want to live with no regrets? And you can, especially because of what says in verse 4. Every valley shall be lifted, all the hills lowered, all the rough spots leveled. It shall happen whether you decide to join in and knock things down or not. 
You see, God's going to do it. God will bring revival. He's going to bring a change in the landscape. Total transformation. Anybody wants to see a change in the landscape here in America? (laughs) Anybody want to see transformed towns, changed churches, humbled homes, converted children? Anybody want to see that? I think we all would love to see that. Let me ask you this. Are you prepared? Are you prepared for 100 people to come streaming through these doors? I find this an encouragement to keep whacking the moles, keep whacking the sin, keep pressing to straighten up my act, to make it clear to God that I'm willing to upend my whole life just so I can see his glory in our day. I want to be ready when that happens. I don't want it to pass me by. There are lots of religious folks that have totally missed out on revivals when they've happened. You may remember this passage actually from the New Testament. A voice crying out in the wilderness. Who is it? John the Baptist. John was calling people to repentance in preparation for the Lord's coming. Revival was coming. God was going to make his presence felt like never before. And he did it in a most unexpected way, didn't he? That's what we celebrate this time of year. A baby in an animal trough. Think about it. And most religious people in Jesus' day missed it. And most people today are missing it. Oh, what a cute little baby in the manger scene. Oh, a cute little baby. You ever pondered, I mean really pondered, what it means for the cosmic creator to become a poor, humble child for you and for me? Why lies he in such mean a state where ox and ass are feeding? Good Christian fear for sinners here, the silent word is pleading. And then comes that startling line. You just seen the picture of the baby. Nails, spear shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. Hail, hail, the word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. Friends, the glory of the crib, followed by the glory of the cross. Jesus said it in John 12, right after Andrew brought some Greeks, some foreigners, to come see Jesus. Jesus says, ah, all flesh is coming. The hour is now here that I will be glorified. And he went to the cross, and most of worshiping Israel missed out. And glory is coming again one day when it will be revealed to all flesh. There's coming a day, friends, when the Son of God will return. And all those minor little glories that everyone is toying around with and living for, they're all going to be snuffed out like these candles. Houses, careers, cars, all the stuff that we're living for. Oh, my life is so crazy. And then real glory is going to show up. I'm looking forward to that day when Jesus Christ explodes into our history and we will know real glory. All flesh will experience it. Are you preparing for that? Are you longing for that? Maybe we doubt. Well, verses 6 to 8 offer reassurance, at least in the first place, for the reverend. Reassurance for the reverend. Now, our ESV is not helpful here with its quotation marks. In the original Hebrew, there's no quotation marks. I believe Isaiah is discouraged. Do you know preachers get discouraged? 
Isaiah heard in verse 5 that all flesh shall see God's glory. And now he hears the cry to call out, and he's perplexed. I believe his response goes all the way through verse 7. Put your final quotation mark there at the end of verse 7. Listen to it this way. A voice says, cry, speaking to Isaiah. And I said, Isaiah, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its constancy is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. Do you hear the preacher's distress? People are like transient flowers, and they're okay with it. For centuries, prophets like Isaiah had preached to hard hearts who remain constant. That's a better translation than the word beauty here. Constant, unmoved. Like Hezekiah, right? He heard the word of the Lord. What was his first thought? Oops, I sinned, but praise be to God, it won't impact my present security and all I have now. Preachers often feel like their labors are in vain. The thoughts come. I was thinking about this verse when I conducted a funeral last week. At the committal, I was actually surrounded by all these gravestones where many dead people lay. I was literally reading the word of God to the dead, and none of them responded. It often feels like this when I share the good news with unbelievers. Frank, you can be forgiven of all those things you regret in your life. You can be saved and set free of your sins. And Frank says, that's wonderful, Joel, but I'm all right. Don't worry about me. And it breaks my heart because they're not. I keep preaching and people keep dying. That's what Isaiah is feeling right now. They're like flowers. They pop up, they look good for a minute, and then the breath of God comes in judgment. They're gone. Saw a whole graveyard filled with them. But wonderful encouragement we find in verse 8. Calvin actually talks about the whole Gospels here in just a few words. It's also good news for you. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Do you hear the problem? Man's brevity. What is the answer? The eternality of the word that regenerates. That regenerates. Peter will actually quote this in 1 Peter chapter 1. He will say, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news which was preached to you. The good news preached to you. You get that? This word brings people to life when the Spirit blows. The same breath of God that blows people away also breathes through the preacher as he preached faithfully the Word of God. And it may be starting to blow in some hearts right now. He's contrasting the perishable seed by which you were born, all you were born by perishable seed, but the imperishable Word of God brings you to new life, born again. I'm hoping it's starting to blow right now in some hearts around here. Maybe some of you hearts that are watching on TV. You know what Isaiah is saying? 
He's telling you what you need for Christmas. You need, you know what you need for Christmas? Is it on your list? Preaching. You need preaching. Preaching that reveals the glory of God. Preaching is God's gift to you. It's good news. And wonderfully, if you didn't look ahead, he scheduled Christmas on a Sunday this year. Christmas is scheduled on a Sunday. So you don't have to be disappointed when you go to the tree on Christmas morning and you find no sermon. You can come here and you can have unwrapped before you a wonderful sermon just for you to hear. Hmm. We can hear God's word, how the eternal word became flesh and dwelt among us. And now we can become eternal beings by simply believing in him. I hope this doesn't only give the preacher encouragement, but all of you as well. And our last word is rejoice in the ruler and his reward. Rejoice in the ruler and his reward. Verse 9, go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that are with young. I absolutely love this section. I know you've heard some judgment in this sermon. But the tidings of comfort and joy outweigh that. And you see it right here. Actually, I felt like I was climbing a mount as I was listening to Handel's Messiah while writing this. You have a lot of Isaiah 40 in there. This news is so good that it made me want to climb a mountaintop with a megaphone and just start shouting the good news to people. Made me remember this message was first given to a shattered, insignificant group of people in Babylon, in pagan Babylon. And Isaiah says to them, don't be afraid to sing loud. Don't be afraid to shout, to spread what is truly good news. Truly good news. And I want us to leave here thinking about that. Let's think about this during our short stay in pagan America. It's going to be very brief. Let's not fear what others will think when you seek to make God big in this world. Let's not fear what others think when we seek to make God big in this world. He's already big, but we can make him big by our response. I want us to think about competing with all the Santa Claus talk. Children, you should prefer to talk about Jesus coming on Christmas more than Santa's because his coming is infinitely better news for boys and girls. What do you mean, Pastor Joel? Let's compare the two. Let's compare the two. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He is going to find out who's naughty and nice. Santa Claus is coming to town. It gets creepier. He sees you when he's sleeping, when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. So you better be good. 
for goodness sake. <laughs> That's a scary Santa Claus. <laughs> I'm not trying to start an anti-Santa movement here. But think about it, that could prompt nightmares. <laughs> Maybe this explains all those kids who start screaming bloody murder when they get to the front of the Santa line and they have to go up, right? Maybe they've been paying attention to the lyrics. Good thing that Santa isn't real. Oops, I, did I say that a lot? We're going to have to edit that out, Dave. Oh. Dave. <laughs> You have Santa and you have a real Savior who comes as an approachable baby. Nobody would fear him. He's a ruler also, as this passage says, to conquer our true enemies. Your great enemies are sin, death, and the devil. And like Santa, did you see in that passage? He comes with reward. He comes bearing gifts. And guess for those who are on the naughty list. Because if there is a naughty list, guess what? You're all on it. And recompense. That means he's come to repair all those broken things in your life. And then that favorite picture, that wonderful picture of Jesus coming as our good shepherd. He's come to watch over us. To gather us into his church. And I love this, this picture. He takes us up in his arms and pulls us close to his heart. That's who Jesus is. I don't know about you, but I'm voting for Jesus this Christmas. Jesus. His presence in our world is true comfort and true joy. The Geneva Bible comments on this section. He shows in one word that perfection of all man's happiness, which is to have God's presence. And one day, when he returns for the final time, you're going to be made like him because you will see him as he is. Friends, the good news of Christmas is that Jesus became all we are by nature, that we might become all he is by grace alone. So let's make Jesus big this week. Here's your homework assignment. Keep reading Isaiah chapter 40. Pray that God will actually open your eyes up to how big God is and then read the rest of Isaiah chapter 40. And there, friends, you will find comfort and joy that has no end. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh, we give you thanks and praise. You've been so good to us. You've given us the greatest gift that we could ever receive on that first Christmas morn. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came to know us in our experience here in this broken world, that you joined us in our exile so that you could lead us out of exile and into true glory. I pray that by the power of your spirit, Father, that you'll send, your, send us, give us great longing, longing to see Jesus and longing to share him with others that they might hear the truly good news that arrived this first Christmas morn. Help us to long, help us to wait, and help us to be dying to sin, preparing the way for his coming. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.